Have you ever been really angry at someone? I mean, so miffed at them by something that they did or said to you? I haven't personally, but I'm sure you have. <laughs> of course, I'm kidding. We all have, right? And, and some of us have had the occasion where we write a letter to the person that has grieved us, or we write out that email, and then we drop the letter in the box, or we hit send on the computer. And then we read the thing about a week later, and we think to ourselves, oh my goodness, what did I say? In the heat of the moment, you think, I shouldn't have said it that way. I shouldn't have been as harsh as I was on my brother or my sister. Certainly, I could have softened my position a bit. Well, as a side note, Christians in this church don't even send the email or write the letter. Don't even wait for a 24-hour cooling off period. No. You go to that brother or that sister, you address them face-to-face, you pray for them and love them, and as Ephesians 4.15 says, you speak the truth, but you do it in love. But that's a side note, okay? Now back to the sermon. Uh, This is the second week we're preaching on Galatians, and I began to wonder as I prepared for the sermon this week, did Paul regret sending this letter to Galatia? Maybe he read it a month or a year later and thought, maybe I could have softened my position just a bit. Maybe I didn't have to be as harsh and critical on them. You know, as Tyler said last week, all of Paul's letters follow an ancient Greco-Roman way of writing letters. In the Greco-Roman world, the, the medium would have been the general elements that you would have an opening salutation. Hey, I'm St. Paul. I'm writing to you Galatians. And then you would have a greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, that type of thing. And then you would say a prayer of blessing or thanksgiving over that congregation that you're writing to. Then after that, you'd get to the body of the letter while you're writing to them. And finally, you would have a farewell or a greeting at the end. Galatians alone has no thanksgiving. Paul lights right into that congregation with righteous indignation and tough words for them. He doesn't say to them, guys, I love you. You're you're a great congregation. He doesn't say, I praise God all the time for your faithfulness. I thank God for your goodness and loving kindness towards me. No, he goes right into critical mode. I want to look at that with you today. If you have your Bibles, we're still in chapter 1, the second part of chapter 1 in Galatians is to, just to the right of Corinthians, just to the left of Ephesians and Philippians, pretty much right after the Gospels. It helps you if you go into your Bible, but I'm going to give you some slides in case you're a little lazy this morning. <laughs> just kidding. But Paul does skip the formalities and goes right into righteous indignation. In, in verse uh, 6 today, he says, I'm astonished that you so quickly are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Even after this verse, he stops himself and says, not that there is another gospel. You see what they're doing? The gospel that has freed them through faith in Jesus Christ, they're now submitting to the law, and it's not good news at all. And in fact, he goes on and says to them in verse 9, if any of you ever preaches a gospel contrary to what I have preached, the one that you received at first, Let him be accursed. Let him burn in hell. 
Do you think maybe he read that a month or two later and says, boy, I wish I wouldn't have said it quite like that. I could have been softer with them. Or maybe he meant it because he was really serious about their sin. You know, if any church deserved righteous indignation, it was the church at Corinth. You ever read through Corinthians? I mean, that was a messed up church. They didn't deserve a thanksgiving for sure. I mean, they were prideful. They were quarreling. They, some of them said, I belong to Paul. Others said, well, I belong to Cephas. I'm better than you. Another said, I belong to Apollos. I'm better than all of you. In that same church, there was a young man who was having sexual relations with his mother-in-law. And the church didn't say anything about it. There were men going to brothels, and the church didn't say anything about it. There were Christians suing other Christians in pagan courts of law, and the church didn't say anything about it. And yet, did Paul give them an angry letter, firing off just right after and no thanksgiving? No. In fact, he spent six verses thanking them for their goodness and faithfulness. So I ask you today, what's the difference? The million-dollar question is, why is Paul so miffed at the Galatians when he sees, seems to let the sinful Corinthians off? Here's the deal. I believe that the crime of the Galatian church outweighed the, all the crimes of the Corinthian church. You see, here's the deal. When you have the gospel, lawsuits can be forgiven in the mercy of Jesus when you have the gospel, sexual sin, no matter how deep or awful it is, can be crucified with Christ on the cross of Jesus. When you have the gospel, arrogance and pride can be mitigated by humble submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But when you do not have the gospel, there is no way on earth to have peace with God or with those you love. Let them be accursed, Paul says. The gospel We've got to get that right. It's of primary importance in the church. Bishop John Rogers, theologian and bishop of the ACNA church, once came to St. Helena's, and he said the gospel is so important for Christians. He said it's like this. You ever gone into your closet in the morning in the wee hours, and you, you put on your button-up shirt for the day, and then you go into the bathroom, and you turn on the light and look in the mirror, and all the buttons are askew. He said, that's what happens when you don't get the gospel right. He said, the gospel is the first button on the Christian shirt. If you don't get that right, you're endangering your soul. And that's what Paul is saying. That's why he was miffed at the Galatians. They had added the obligations of circumcision and obedience to the law, to the freeing grace of Jesus. And because they had done that, they had put fetters and chains back on their souls even after being liberated by the grace of Christ Jesus, and now they were endangering their souls of hell. That's why he is so miffed. He sets out this morning to put forth that grace is all-sufficient, that Jesus is all you need, and he drives home his point by two things. First of all, he says, the grace of the gospel I received is supernatural revelation. He said, I didn't make it up. The second thing is, Look at my life. He says, my personal experience can prove that the gospel is God's gospel, not my own. So let's look at that. Supernatural truth. I had a parishioner a few years ago who said to me without shame, she is now in the National Episcopal Church, she said, 
You know, I love the red-letter words of Jesus in the Gospels, all that, those messages of kindness and goodness towards one another, but I hate that St. Paul. I don't listen to him at all. I'm like, you're a Christian and you're telling your priest this without any shame? My goodness. Folks, we don't have that option, do we? If we believe the gospel, we believe that it's from God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down through the hands of men exactly as God intended it. If we don't have God's word as a supernatural revelation, then all we're doing is groping about in the darkness trying to find a God that we'll never understand. We're making it up as we go along. And you know, I've known people like that who kind of look at the life around them and make it up as they go along. Their gods always turn out to look a whole lot like they do. That's what happens when you make it up as you go along. You see, we call that natural revelation. You look at the natural world around you and you deduce what you think God might say and do. We don't believe that. We believe in a supernatural revelation. Here's what Paul says in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Whose gospel is it? It's God's gospel. It's God's good news delivered directly to Paul. Second thing he says in verse 12, he says, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it as a revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, those Judaizers that Tyler mentioned last week had come into the church of Galatia, and they had bewitched the Galatians, saying that Jesus alone is not enough. Peter and James and the other apostles are saying that it's Jesus plus the law. And they were bewitched and they believed that. Paul is saying to you, guys, I received this message of grace directly from Jesus. In other words, in verse 16 and 17, he said, I didn't immediately consult with anyone about it after Jesus appeared to me, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia. See what Paul's saying? He's saying that this is a supernatural gospel given to me by the risen Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And I didn't have to go to Peter and see if my notes were right about Jesus. I didn't have to ask to see if my facts were right. I didn't have to ask anyone's approval because this gospel came directly from Jesus himself. Sometimes we Christians get criticized for being arrogant about the truth. When we say that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by him, people say, you arrogant Christian. But it's not really arrogance. What we believe is that we've received what God gave us, and we're not at liberty to, to change it or modify it to make people happy. It's the gospel of God given to his church. C.S. Lewis sums it up, that if it's true, it's of absolute importance. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance at all. If true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Either it comes from God directly to man or just groping in the darkness. Paul says it came from God. The second argument is from his personal experience. Now look at this. He's basically saying, I'm the least likely candidate in the world to believe in the gospel of grace simply through Jesus Christ. He said, man, no, no, no. My past life will prove it to you. Look at verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. 
So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. That's the law, the tradition of Moses. Remember, long before we have Paul, the Christian, we have Saul, the believing Jew, who was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a doctor in the law of Moses. He's the last person who would ever become a Christian if he didn't get divine revelation from God himself. In fact, this guy was a religious terrorist. Remember that awful shot of those 21 Coptic Christians on their knees and those ISIS uh, terrorists behind them ready to behead them? Well, Paul would have been one of those hooded terrorists in his day. That would have been Paul. He was a religious terrorist. In Acts 26, it says, Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but they were put to death, and I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them to foreign cities. Wow, Paul the terrorist. He would get the letter from the synagogue, from the the rabbi, locating the messianic believers. He would throw them into prison. He would waterboard them or whatever torture he had to in order to get them to blaspheme. And if they ran to foreign cities, he became the terminator. He chased them down and killed them. I'll be back, Paul would say. See, that was Paul. I mean, that was Saul. That was who he was. He thought he was doing God's will in that former life until he had that direct revelation from God of the grace of Jesus Christ. And on that moment, as the light shone on the road to Damascus, Jesus asking, he fell on his knees, and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said to Jesus, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And his life was changed by grace through a direct revelation of Jesus. And it was never the same. My friends, that is, for me, the greatest testimony and witness to the veracity of the Bible's gospel that that you can find in the entire New Testament. We can trust it because this, this terrorist has now become a Christian because of the grace of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Some say that Paul alone invented that gospel of grace. But we know that's not true. We know that the Judaizers saying that Peter and James and those did not believe in the same gospel as as Paul did, it's not true. Because in Acts chapter 15, we have these words. The question before the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 was, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. But when they heard that, Peter stood up. And he gave a stirring speech. He says, now then, why do you try and test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, he says. We believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. By grace through faith, we're saved. Paul and Barnabas got up after Peter and said, Man, we've seen signs and wonders among the Gentiles as they have come into a saving relationship with Jesus apart from circumcision, apart from the law. And finally, James himself got up and said, Man, that chain of obedience, that yoke of our ancestors has been lifted. These Gentiles are being set free by Jesus. The gospel of grace. It changed a man like Paul. 
It changed him from a terrorist to become an evangelist. It changed him from a bloodthirsty persecutor of the church to a preacher of Christ Jesus. It changed him from one who was sure that the law of Moses saves to a one who trusted in the grace of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. It changed him from one who was a rising star in Judaism who looked back at his life and counted it all as loss, as refuse, as dung compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. Philippians 3.8. I love it. The gospel, it changes us. I love what Tim Keller said about it. He said the gospel of justifying faith means that while Christians are in themselves still sinful, still sinning, yet Christ in God's sight, they are made accepted and righteous. So we can say that we're more wicked than we ever dared believe. Now that's where the gospel starts. You're more wicked than you ever believed, but you're also more loved and accepted in Christ than you ever hoped for at the very same time. And when you accept that gospel in your heart, he says it creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. It means that you see more and more your sins and flaws, yet in spite of that, the more precious and electrifying and amazing God's grace appears to you. Where do you stand with the good news this morning? Have you accepted God's grace into your life, not trying to work or worry, but just submitting yourself to the love of God and the mercy of Jesus? Is it still a sweet sound in your ear? Does it still captivate your heart? Well, there are two types of people in the church today. There are ty- the one type of people who uh, have, you've never responded to the gospel of grace. You don't know what it's like to be redeemed. Well, if you're in that category, let me tell you, if a terrorist like Paul, Saul turned to Paul, can be forgiven in an instant of time by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, there is not a person in this church who can't be redeemed in the same way. Set free. Your chain's gone. Living without guilt in this life, without fear in death. Your chains can be gone today. So come. Come to Jesus. Don't try and work and do good on your own. Pull yourself by your own spiritual bootstraps to another level. The Holy Spirit will do all that for you. He'll come in and begin to make you desire the things of God. All you've got to do is lay your life and your heart down at the throne and the foot of the cross. Pour yourself out to Jesus, and he will pour his grace into you. But for some of you, you've been Christians a very long time. And I've been married 25 years And I'll admit sometimes I don't appreciate my wife like I should. After 25 years, sometimes you forget how precious she is. Some of us have forgotten how precious grace is. Some of us have had a Damascus Road experience, but it was 25 or 30 years ago. And we don't go to church like we used to go to church. We don't pray our prayers with the same fervor that we once prayed our prayers with. We don't appreciate the supernatural revelation of God in Christ and read our Bibles like we once did. And for those of us whose hearts have grown cold to grace, I call you, as Jesus called the church at Ephesus in Revelation, return to your first love. Do the things you once did before the Lord. So I'm going to call you, as Keller called us, think about all your inglorious sins in all the depths of depravity in the sinful human heart that you have, and think of Jesus' lavished grace upon your soul that washes you free 
and breaks your chains. And when you let that mercy and that grace flow back into your heart, thank Him. Rejoice, give thanks, and praise. We're going to shake things up this morning a little bit. Rather than saying the Nicene Creed, I want you to think about which category you're in. You don't know grace, you hadn't received it, or you forgot it a long time ago, and you don't appreciate it. But whatever category you're in, I want you to stand and sing this song and meditate in your heart of hearts, in your mind of minds, on the wonderful, amazing grace that's given to us in Christ Jesus. I want you to stand and sing with me.